Welcome. This is season three of The Daily Marketer, where we've decided to do something a little special. Earlier this year, startup junkie and marketplace master Ty Wolf Jones, hey Ty, approached me and pitched us the idea of instead of interviewing founders and marketers, why don't we dive into the world of marketplaces, the VH1 behind the music of marketplaces, or what is the making of the sausage of a marketplace? Ty could bring the operations point of view, and I could bring the marketing point of view, and we could make some marketplace magic, or maybe a little more like marketplace mayhem. So join us for the series where we've spoken to over a dozen marketplace leaders and pioneers from Uber, Convoy, Bellhop, DoorDash, Rover, but also some rising stars and marketplaces from multiple countries, venture capitalists, and more. You're not going to want to miss an episode. If I can ask, so you, you didn't know what would or would not work it being the third or fourth market. So in some way, it, you were pioneering this this growth. D- did you borrow from digital marketplaces or you, you kind of mentioned you, you use the existing infrastructure of like, well, the city of Seattle interviews these drivers to see how they are as, as a driver or there's there's already taxi drivers in here. We'll, we'll start there. But did you borrow from digital marketplaces to start figuring out your growth path? Hmm. I mean, I'm sure we did in some way, but it was, it was like pretty scrappy. (laughs) Like those long, I mean, we, we would like literally just take taxi trips and hand out flyers. Um, And I think it's interesting because when you're marketing to a group of people who are, well, especially in Seattle, it was like an immigrant um, the drivers were predominantly East African. It was a very word of mouth. It was a totally different, it was very different than marketing to a rider. Right. Um, and so in many ways it was like actually borrowing from like what works in different cultures, right. Talking to community centers and really understanding what the East African groups in the community were looking for. Um, and then also, you know, making sure that you were connecting with, with your drivers and then the referral program too, was also pretty critical. Um, I think that the referrals are, you see every startup, right. Put a referral link out there, but they were pretty critical for Uber. Um, and we also saw them be a very sticky driver, um, much better than, than someone that maybe clicked an ad. Yeah, Seattle did do some creative stuff on the rider side too. I'd love for you to talk about they they pioneered. Didn't wasn't there a big Uber initiative that got pioneered out of Seattle? Yeah. So I mean, we did. We were lucky. I think this is also speaks to just like company structure early on, uh, for better or worse. Right. There's always going to be some things that come back and bite you when you give people a lot of freedom. Um, but Uber and Travis really believed in the autonomy of the GMs and the city. So even though they were definitely not franchises in many ways, it felt like we were able to operate quite freely. Um, And so on the marketing side, we did, we got to do a lot of really fun stuff. Uh, I think the best one was kittens. Jen Joyce, who worked, who was like, she was even earlier than I was on the Uber side. So it was her idea she wanted to like fill cars up with kittens and you would like roll up and there would be kittens in your car. And, you know, we iterated on that a little bit because we didn't want like smushed kitties. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, you know, we ended up partnering with 
with the with shelter and cheeseburger and and ran it throughout the country and i believe it, it ran for a number of years um you know and you know you could on your app get kittens on demand and come pet them at your office and they were adoptable and then all the proceeds went to the shelters obviously on these animal shelters and it was it was so fun and those things though some people internally were skeptical like this is the craziest idea and it's not going to work um i think there was a lot of iterations of it like there were even on-demand puppies eventually there's been a lot of animals that have been brought to you on demand um, and I do miss that about Uber too. Mm. I I think that there used to be a lot more freedom to do really fun on demand. Uh, use like use the technology to do fun things. Like one time yeah. we did a record store on demand um, that was only in Seattle. And uh, one time too, we we did from Mad Max. We got the cars from Mad Max and then they would come pick you up and take you from place to place. There are just so many like little fun things that you can do as pop-ups um, that, you know, some of them were huge blowouts like kittens were, and some of them were just like really fun for local people like the record star was. Um, but I, I think Uber gave us a lot of free range to do a lot of really creative kind of grassroots marketing efforts. And, and they were super successful in the early days. What was one thing it, it could have been for getting drivers or for getting riders that, that didn't work. That was a little more creative. Oh, everyone. I'm, I bet everyone internally knows exactly what I'm going to say right now, but uh, there was a gas station effort that uh, we called super pumped. I'm sure that there are some blog posts out there about this. And it was a really interesting idea. So it was really simple. It was like, hey, people getting gas have cars. We need more cars. So therefore, they should become drivers on the Uber platform. If we offer them free gas, they're going to sign up. Right? And so yeah. all, of those, all of those things obviously prove out. But in some ways, I think it was like we were, we were always not competing, but trying to find the next cool thing. And then when you found it, it got really celebrated. And I think we got a little bit over our skis on super pumped because now all of a sudden we deployed and there was a lot of internal fighting about this. Mind you, it was not, we not all of us were uh, really excited about sending our teams to random gas stations around the city, giving away free money, trying to get people to sign up to drive. Some of us thought maybe it wasn't the best use of, of the team's time. However, we still, you know, disagree and commit was a very popular slogan. <laughs> Internally, <laughs> right? Like I disagree, but okay, if we're doing this, then I'm on board and we're going to go hundred percent. So uh, we did it. And it turns out those drivers all churn. Like it's not hmm. that hard to figure out. It's not that, you know, it's not that surprising, I guess, to, to think that, yeah, these people at, we, we targeted you know, like larger gas stations in, you know, off of like Highway 99 type stuff. And these people like, yeah, they took the free hundred bucks. That's awesome. Um, free gas, like who wouldn't? And then they, yeah, they signed up to be a driver, but they, they never actually completed trips. Um, so that was a, I think that was a, that was a, a learning experience for us. It's, it's funny you bring up the politics of spending money like to get gas because in the paid marketing to get the supply of whether it's pet sitters or insurance agents, and we spend millions of dollars, but it's often, you know, people don't see that element. They don't see that 
this person costs maybe hundreds or a couple thousand dollars to get. But then once yeah. it, it's it's they see it in a in a physical way or the logistics way of picking up gas, right? They go, wow, this feels like a lot of money we're spending just to get this driver. But really, if you think about it, if even one driver came out of a thousand dollars of gas purchase, that that might that might be a good turn on investment, right? Hundred percent. I think it was a definitely a valid test that we that should have been done. But I think in retrospect, we probably should have kept it a little bit more of a control test to and then look at the churn rates post. But yeah, you're right. Like what people spend to acquire, like whether like you said, an insurance agent, a walker, a driver, a delivery driver, whatever it is. I mean, it's pretty insane. And I think it speaks when you see some of these referrals too. Um, you know, like five hundred dollar referral currently, both, both yeah. sides, like you know that the LTV of a driver has to exceed what we're what they're spending, or at least maybe be even, or <laughs> depending on how stiff the competition is, right? But yeah. but I think that you know there's some serious dollars spent. You're right that it, it, it. I'm definitely I definitely don't think we should have tried super pumps, but we probably shouldn't have scaled it as quickly as we did. Yeah, going bravely into that direction. So you mentioned super pumped kittens. In the early days, was it easy to get customers? It sounds like it was pretty hard to get the drivers, but did the customers come more frictionless? Yes, I think it was. There, was, The demand was pent up, right? Like there was an, a fundamental need. And that's what's so beautiful about Uber is that it was just, it was so simple. Like, oh, why didn't we have that before, right? And the reality is, is people, transportation should should be fluid, should be easy, and we should be moving towards a world where car ownership, especially if you live in a city, is just not necessary. But in places like Seattle, where the public transportation systems just aren't advanced enough, um, you, know, you need solutions. And so I, I think the customers just like, they just came in the early days. And, and I will say, you know, it was very grassroots marketing in the very early days. Uber was really smart and they would look for hyper-local influencers um, to kind of be some of their first hires. And, and so that kind of made the brand cool in a way, right? It was, it was known only mostly amongst tech workers. You know, they did like the founders card early on. You got like the sweetest deal, right? <laughs> um, so there are some like really, really good kind of hyper local, smaller scale marketing tactics done early on. And then of course they always did run paid advertising, but it was all about the driver acquisition and supply stability, I think was was the key. And we were worried less about uh, the rider side. You mentioned the PL went over a billion. Is what you do when it goes from you know a million PL to 500 million i imagine it's 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 different there's there's changes it's a different level of scale was there chunks or, or sections of scale that you saw that you could characterize into it's almost like a scene 1 scene 2 scene 3 or was it pretty continuous and incremental i mean i think there were definite scenes right like mm-hmm. i think early scene was super scrappy very autonomous like a hustle it was like a full on hustle then scene two is like we got a high like hiring mayhem, right? Like it was all about hiring. 
Um, you know, I think any founder you talk to when you're going through that scale, this, you know, I, I came to Uber having managed maybe like a team of like four, you know, before that. And then all I'm doing is spending time interviewing people. Um, and then it mixed with also the regulatory side uh, for my specific region, but that I would say like scene two was like just hyper growth rocket ship, like just throw as many people on your team as you could possibly hire. Well, I will say that Uber worked really hard to keep the bar high. Um, there was pretty extensive testing that went into being hired at Uber. Um, and there wasn't, there were very few exceptions made to those like kind of tests and benchmarks that they put in place. So it was while we, it was, so it was like scene one was just scrappy. Scene two was hiring. I think scene three was the, you know, kind of harder piece of you were, we were now scaled ish, not efficiently, but scaled. And now it was time to, to kind of like put the ducks in a row and, and clean up the business model a little bit. And, you know, I think, People know the delete Uber. Um, I think internally we might refer to it as like the delete Uber phase. I think we we had a hard external uh, brand trust issue. Travis obviously left around that point, and and it was time for the company to kind of like put its big boy pants on and um, get a, a CEO that would get the company ready to IPO and focus on profitability. And then, you know, that's kind of where they're at now, right? Is now they're IPO, but still focused on profitability um, and trying to figure out what kind of the long-term looks like, right. which I think they're doing a good job of. Like it's, you know, it's been quiet. It's been quiet. Like that's what you want. Um, I am sad though, that I feel like they've gone away from some of the more invent, like Inventive, creative, yeah. Yeah, the autonomous car side. You know, I really, I really believe that Uber could push that forward faster, being in the race and having leaders like Travis, you know, pushing the world to be faster in adoption of driverless, you know. And so it is kind of sad to see those those business models split off or be sold and and really Maybe it's the right thing, but it's it's definitely less fun and probably less impactful to the world to not have those driving forward with as much like enthusiasm as they used to be. Yeah. I actually interviewed for a role at Uber. It was maybe like four or five years ago. And it was, st- Travis was still there and it was still that, like they were talking about the helicopters that they were going to have. And there's that concept video where there was the hel- helipads on different buildings. And I was like, oh my God, I can't wait to work here. This is going to be incredible. And like you said, it was a, it was a hard and long and picky interview process. I, I didn't end up getting it, but I, I, I would have expected maybe by this point, if they would have been following that trajectory to, they probably have some helipads at this point and they'd probably be doing other things. Like, you know, it wouldn't be just autonomous vehicles in, <clears throat> I think they were doing it in Phoenix, Arizona, and then they, they stopped that, right? It, it might've been in four cities by this point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like it is sad. I have been the, it's escaping me now what the name of that kind of like Uber group was. Um, But yeah, it was exciting. And I think that, I think they were like drones that carried people. Um, There might've even been some pilots done like in Dubai or something with them. Um, You know, more countries that, that have more control 
and a willingness to experiment, right, for better or for worse. Um, you know, there were definitely talks happening on on the like with governments to kind of start deploying some of this stuff. And you know, not, that's not to say there isn't stuff like that still happening. I'm I'm obviously just not as aware of it. Um, but but yeah, it was exciting. Like I. I don't know if I'd want to be the first person in the flying drone. <laughs> but I certainly love the idea of, yeah. you know, electric flying machines taking me around, especially because I live on an island. <laughs> that, that'd be nice. That'd be really nice. Ty and I were talking when he worked at Uber and DoorDash, and I was saying, I'm like, man, you know, I just, I'm always working so hard here at Assurance. And if I had to characterize where Assurance is at, I would say it's, it's a scene too, because uh, we've done a lot of hiring. And, and Ty goes, "Dude, you haven't seen anything." He's like, "How the hustle? That scene one hustle at Uber, and then we, where he went to next at DoorDash." He's like, it, it, "It was two or three x what what it feels like here." You know, was that also your experience? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. It was nuts. There's, it's 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 fun to talk to people about their next job after uber because everyone's like uh, yeah i mean they people think they're working a lot like they're not working a lot i mean it was a life commitment you know i think that and and that also you know speaking about the scenes like we didn't make the transition and, and ty was really picked up on this way earlier honestly before anyone did on my team at least i was like oh ty whatever but he you know he knew that culturally we couldn't sustain you can't sustain this like work hard, play hard kind of tech attitude forever. You have to evolve. Like you have to welcome families. You have to welcome right. people who have other, and, and also just for an individual, some people can work 80 hours a week for 30 years. But the reality is most of us don't want to do that, right? Like we, we want to be fulfilled by having a job we love and that's super interesting and challenging, but we also want hobbies and friends and family and uber really definitely did ask you and require you i think to be successful at the company to give that up um for a point there and and that was really that was challenging like if you got a phone call in the middle of the night like you were expected to answer it and if you were it was your anniversary like too bad like you you were you were like i've definitely i've definitely left dinners um because there's been fire drills and and that was the expectation um and while it was fantastic and i loved the experience i definitely am not looking for that type of experience for the next company i work for (laughs) especially with a newborn yeah yep before we start wrapping this up, this has been really cool. Let's start talking more about, so how have you used what you learned at Uber in the current startups you're, you're working with or helping out at, at Vivian & Co.? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one thing that I've noticed with many startups is that they think that they have something that they want to scale before they actually do. You know, like, I, I think that... Uber was so lucky that it solved a real problem and it really knew when it was time to, to, to press that kind of acceleration pedal. But I think I would encourage like startup founders to be really diligent about just because you are excited about the idea, like listen to feedback. And I think there's a million books and a million blogs written about like doing, 
you know, gathering customer feedback and really listening to what's happening out there. Um, but it's amazing to me how many founders actually will ignore that. Uh, I was working for a, like, I won't name the company, but did some work for kind of almost like a, a learning platform, um, higher ed, medium ed learning platform. And they didn't have the numbers that said they could scale, but they were ready to spend you know, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars scaling something that they weren't, that they had no data to show that it was actually scalable. Um, So I think that, but then when you get to the fun part of, you know, I think, for example, like early childhood education is a place that there is, there's a place for scale there and there's a need. Then using the, it's so, it's so fun to take all those lessons that you learned about how to scale something um, and start thinking about how that can bake into new companies. And so that's really like, I think the most fun for me personally, it's not about what is a no, but more like, okay, cool. How do I, how can I take all these playbooks and kind of the mentality and the willingness to test different things, but also think about it in a scale perspective. Like how do we do that over and over again in multiple cities um, or in multiple countries is really exciting and, and really fun. Totally. Yeah. So you mentioned the numbers for this medium tutoring or learning platform uh, weren't there to say that they could scale. What exactly were you looking for there that would have said that they could? Yeah. I mean, I think retention is huge, right? Like you can always like kind of fill a leaky bucket, but if people aren't, if your customer, if your early customers aren't retaining, like, even if you don't have a lot of early customers because you don't have the funds to like really fill the bucket, that's actually probably a good thing. Why, why spend so much money dumping customers into a funnel that's, that's not working? Um, so I think that was a really key thing for me. It was like, you're not seeing return customers or retention. And then also just diligence on your finances. You know, like it's like people want to believe that something is working. And so they will put numbers down on paper that I think are not always a hundred. They're not getting into the details of accuracy of what their finances actually look like. And I think that that is fine. If you're, if you're in a startup world, like you don't want to get too bogged down into too many details and decimal point accuracy. Right. But you want to be honest with yourself around like, okay, it is my contribution margin actually 30% or is it really 5%? Right. Like, Get you know, real. Yeah. <laughs> like be honest with yourself rather than just wanting to chase something that that you can paint a picture that looks like success, even though when you know deep down that like it just isn't quite there yet. Totally. Yeah. Ty, before we go into rapid mayhem questions, do you have anything else we want to cover? No, I think we nailed it. I'm, I think I'm ready to hear her. Rapid oh, mayhem I didn't know about this rapid mayhem. What? Well, Brooke, it's kind of new. We're, we're trying it okay. out. All right. So sometimes podcasts do these rapid fire questions and you say the first thing that comes to your mind. Well, okay. this is rapid mayhem questions like marketplace style. All right. So if you're ready, tell us the first thing that comes to your head. Okay. Okay. What marketplace would you be? Top towel or Upwork. Okay. Best marketplace of all time. Uber. Boom. What's a marketplace you like? That is not so popular or well-known. I would say weekdays. What's your favorite marketplace that failed? Uh, I can only think of Sidecar. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it's it's, it's, it's the democratized ride sharing. Yeah. (laughs) 
What's the marketplace that did they what would they have? Well, I mean, they pioneered all these little crazy, you know, peer to peer features that you could do in their tech. They were cool. Yeah, I think they did the first like payment sharing mm-hmm. too. I think huh. they also covered their rear boomers with. So their branding was was a little off, but that's okay. And finally, what's a marketplace that doesn't exist yet, but totally should? Oh, like personal assistance slash like kind of life managers for everyone, mm. not just for like extremely wealthy people. Yeah. So, so not just, I think it's called Stay Alfred or Hello Alfred. That's a Seattle based one. Yeah. Right. Sorry if you guys can hear the fairy honking. Oh, I thought it was I thought it was some technology in your house that was like your time is done in the podcast. No, it is all of the new people who bought sailboats over the pandemic go in front of the ferry and so the ferry's constantly honking. (laughs) Because they don't actually know how to sail. (laughs) Anyway, back to the yeah, hello Alfred is a good example, but it hasn't scaled. And I think they just haven't found the perfect mix between AI and humans. And I also think that the balance between quality, almost like if you think about really quality customer service. So I started my career as a customer service person. And I think that it's really like, do you have thousands of agents that you pay low amounts or do you have less agents that you pay more that are higher quality? And finding that balance for an, like, an assistant platform is really hard i've done a lot of research on it i don't know all the answers but i think it's one that someone will do eventually that's that's that'd be a million dollar answer if if they figured that out yeah i would have if i had figured it out then that would have been the company i was currently working for but i couldn't just i i couldn't i couldn't quite get there um in some of my tests and research that i did on it rapid mayhem questions complete Brooke, you passed Okay, I was a little stressed. And I know I interrupted a couple, but you know. No, it's good. Yeah. So what do you think is the next big step change in marketplaces if if there is one? And maybe it's in regards to to, to work work days. I think actually going back to the employee versus contractor, right? So um, a human-based marketplace, right? A human marketplace, the gig economy, gig economy workers, I believe, you know, that places that people want flexibility in their jobs. I believe that people want to be able to kind of port from one platform to another. And some of them might be skilled, like, you know, TopTal, I think is a great example. I think what they're doing is so it's great. Their bar is super high, really high quality, but it's like, you know, contractors on demand and some, it's not really on demand, but you know, you can get them to flex on and off. What's Um, the name again? TopTal. You know, it's kind of, it's like Upwork, but hyper-specialized, much higher quality, a much more con- very, very, very controlled marketplace. And and so I, I think some of the, the next big things from a human marketplace perspective will be over employment and benefits, you know, and I don't have, I also don't have the answers to those questions, but I hope that the government and that the companies can work together. Um, there's a lot of, there's just a lot of old thinking happening, I think, on both sides. And really, there probably needs to be a third path charted that's not a 1099 worker, that's not an employee, so that there can be the flexibility, but that 
the employee can also, or the, not the employee, but the worker can also find, have health insurance and not pay thousands of dollars a month for it through, you know, Washington Health Plan or that there's a retirement plans that they can access because a lot of these people don't actually aren't putting money away for retirement. And so there's a lot of things out there that I think are critical. And I hope that that's, there is a solution in the marketplace world for these people that are, that want gig economy work, um, but aren't having the like kind of employee benefits accessible to them and that mm-hmm. find them portable um, no matter where they're working. Yeah, the stability of being a freelancer, or a consultant, and raising a family or buying a home is—is is, I, I I don't think it's been solved, and I think that's an output of of what could be that answer, right? Yeah, yeah. Just as like like I you know I'm self employed, so is my husband, and we have a child, and we we pay nineteen fifty a month for health insurance. You know that's insane. Like yeah, it's that's for not your family. Yeah. yeah. Like, obviously, we ha- we need to be insured. It's critical that my son is insured. Um, but n- like $2,000 a month is... It's like rent, mortgage payment. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. crazy, yeah. right? Like, that is insane. So I think that having, you know, we, we have to solve those problems. And and I think it will help. It'll, it'll just help all of us. And it will improve. It'll improve the labor. But you know, and then it will also just improve like our lives, the stability, and then the amount of money that we end up putting back into like the reason why healthcare is so expensive is because so many people aren't insured that then need to access healthcare. Like let's just solve some of these fundamental problems so that, you know, kind of like everyone has what they need and, and it's just a more stable, sensible system. Yeah. That's That's my favorite answer. Yeah. That's the best answer. Yeah. yeah. I, I just got a bunch of ideas just of, from everything you know, just said. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. That's also another business idea, right? Is like mm-hmm. solving those problems, but it is, it's very, it's very challenging to the healthcare one is just, is, is just the most challenging, I think, from a cost perspective. Like, how do you access kind of corporate rates as a whole for the gig economy worker? Like, when I was, I cobred my Uber when I left. You know, and I was paying less per month for my family um, than I am off the off of the government Washington health marketplace, right? And so, how do you give how do you give the opportunity for an Uber driver to purchase very very high quality uh, insurance at a at a low or affordable price? Like that's it's a really hard it's a really hard question. Um, hopefully, some new tech company puts some insurance platform together that's like just awesome <laughs> um, and offers it and finds a portable benefit. Maybe that's why I said, I think government does have to be involved in this. I think government has to be involved. Yeah. And that maybe some of it is subsidized by these companies, but that there isn't the tie or the fear of like, Oh, they're going to be like Uber can't buy insurance for drivers because that's an employee benefit. And now when, you know, they're going to court in, in California, for example, you know, that's going to be brought up in discovery by the other side, proving that they are employees. And I think we need to get past these court battles and really like towards some real solutions around like, okay, what's really going to benefit the workers screw like who voted for who and who donated to whose campaign and who you like, or if you like Uber, you don't like Uber, you like one organization that's working with drivers or you don't like, we have to put all of that aside and really just focus on what's best for the workers. Yeah. 
man, you're here. Any ask to the audience before you go, Brooke? I don't think so. This was really fun though. Thank you so much. It's fun to reflect back onto such a crazy time and also like to think about where we're, where we're headed. Yeah. I, I like it. Yeah. Super cool. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming on Brooke and maybe we could do this again sometime. It was, I feel like we, we learned a lot from you. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having me. All right. See you too. Bye-bye. See What a phenomenal episode, huh, Ty? Yeah, that was great. And we really hope that you got as much out of it, listening to it as we did making it. Thank you for listening. Yes, I second that. Thank you. And don't forget, you can like and subscribe if you wish. We'd rather hear of your thoughts. So tell us what you think of the episode and leave a review, please. Mayhem on, Ty. Yeah, mayhem on, Jacob. Jacob.